we're confronted by him, that is by Satan, in virtually all of the books of the New Testament. Now, in the case of the book of James, he was writing to a congregation in various stages, varying stages of confusion and also fighting. Now, here in James 3, he is instructing them as to how to recognize demonic wisdom. I will call it that because that's what James calls it. He says that that wisdom, verse 15, is earthly, sensual, demonic. Now that ought to tell you that it is originating in Satan. And it is spread by him and his demons using people to create confusion and disorder amongst the people so that they don't know what to make use of in terms of of the knowledge that God has given. Now what he is saying is that a lack of peace is very good evidence that Satan is involved because God's way will not produce what Satan's way is producing. So again, we are told, made very clear, that we, if we are confused at all about the source of something, we are to look at the evidence, at the fruit of what is being produced. And that ought to give us some sort of an, of, of an indication. By their fruits, you shall know them. Now, James is not concerned with what those used of Satan say, but how they live and what they produce in theirs and others' lives. Now, perhaps we know people who are trying to force their opinions on others. Now, we've all done it to some degree. We've all been more interested in the victory of the self than the victory of truth. We all know people who are cunning. We might call them the smart operator. People know, who know how to manipulate others and circumstances for the satisfaction of their desire. We've all been more interested in the victory of self. Now, some of these people will lie. They will cheat. They will bribe. And then they will cleverly cover up their part in it, in order to avoid defection or detection. To them, the end that they are trying to accomplish justifies the means, even if one has to lie, even if one has to throw a tantrum, even if one has to pout to get his way. Now, this is the attitude that regards people who have differing opinions as enemies to be defeated rather than friends to be persuaded. Now, I want you to see this all within the context of what James is writing to a Christian congregation. This is not an epistle that went, quote, to the world. It was not something that he said on an evangelistic campaign, but something that he wrote to a group of people who were already converted. Now, God says through James that what we have just described is unspiritual, it is demonic, and it is false to the truth of God and is nothing more than selfish ambition. You can pick that up in verse 14. That if you have bitter envy and self-seeking, the way that we would probably uh, translate that today is selfish ambition, which is a form of pride, of arrogance, now, what was happening, as we're going to see when we get into, into chapter 4, 
where the problem lies, James put his finger right on it, is that these people who are part of this Christian congregation were judging by worldly standards, and they were making personal gain. You see, their own gain within the congregation, their highest goal. Now, God says this is not from above, it is demonic. And so he is indicating here that envy, vanity, and selfish ambition will always eventually produce confusion, disorder, disharmony, instability, and evil things. Now, all of this has gotten out of that five-verse section there from James 3.13 to James 3.18, that it is good for nothing in terms of producing a fruit of righteousness, but rather what it does is destroy spiritual life. Now, again, a reminder that Satan is undergirding this, and it is being spewed forth from his mind, as we'll see in just a minute. Now, from verse 17, I'm going to give you a checklist to how to discover whether our actions are from above. Now, very quickly, verse 17 says that the wisdom that is from above is first pure, meaning it has no ulterior motive. It is not self-seeking. This is its basic characteristic, and it undergirds all of the rest of the checklist. It is pure, no ulterior motive. It is a searching or seeking after truth. Okay, number two, which comes from peaceable. It means that there is no spirit of competition involved. It is a way that produces right relationships. Another way of turning that would be that it is peace-loving, not competitive. Okay, the third, coming from the word gentle, it indicates someone who is considerate of others, even though one has every reason to be punitive. It is a term that is used in the Bible to describe God's attitude toward Israel. If there was anybody who had the right to take punitive action, it was God. And yet his action toward them was considerate, even though he was the one who was receiving the, what shall I call it, all of their anger and bitterness, the sin was against him. Okay, number four, coming from willing to yield. It means submissive, ready to yield, easily entreated, conciliatory. But it does not in any way mean weak. It simply means someone who is not obstinate. So it is juxtaposed, or the opposite, the antonym of obstinate is somebody who is easily entreated and conciliatory. Number five, which comes from the word, full of mercy and goodness. That whole phrase goes together. It means ready to help even though the other is wrong, which is very difficult to do. Being ready to help even though the other is wrong. The sixth one, without partiality, means single-minded with the truth, unambiguous, straightforward, impartial. And number seven, without hypocrisy, meaning 
that there is not even a hint of deception, sincere, never pretending, always honest. Now, all of these character traits produce peace because God, not Satan, is at work in them. They are characteristics of his personality. Now, those who strive for peace are those who are going to produce a crop of righteousness. Now, we understand, don't we, in, a, in the physical realm, that a certain kind of environment is necessary for the production of a good crop. We put something out in a field. If the environment is not right in the field, then the crop is not going to produce what it should or what it could because the environment is not right. Okay, God is telling us that what he is after in us, the crop of righteousness, the fruits of his spirit, also requires a right environment, and that right environment is peace. He is not saying that some righteousness cannot be produced in other environments. He is saying the most and best will come out of an environment in which there is peace. Now, it becomes very obvious why Satan strives to create confusion, disharmony, disorder, instability, because righteousness cannot be produced well in that kind of a circumstance. He knows what he's doing. I remember seeing in the movie The Time Bandits. You might have seen that movie at one time. And uh, Satan played a part in that movie. And if you can remember the scene in, in that movie, he was seated at what looked like a great big bowl of soup or something. Anyway, there was a big pot, a big kettle, and he was sitting in there looking into it, and he could see things in the soup. And every once in a while, he would reach out and take his stirrer, and he would stir the whole mess up and get everything all mixed up. That's what he does. Because he does not want God's purpose to work. And he knows how to upset the apple cart is to create bad relationships. And he will do it, of course, by taking advantage of human nature. Okay, whenever James wrote this, there were no chapter breaks. And he went right on to the next thought, which picks up, at the beginning of chapter 4, and we see it confirmed that those people there were having fights and quarrels right within the congregation. Now, where do they come from? They come from our desires. And now, here's where Satan is stirring the pot, from our desires. Now, what happens when one person's desire runs head-on to another person's desire? Well, there's going to be a clash of some kind because there's only so much to go around. Whether it happens to be material wealth, a piece of land, power, position, whatever area of life we look, in, look into, people are going to be desiring things, social status, power, or whatever. Now we begin to see why he takes advantage of our desires because Getting people to bump heads is going to be achieved by getting them to act on their desires. Now, 
having desire is not wrong, but an unlawful desire is wrong. Now, the first four or five verses, it's all we're going to be concerned with right here. And we need to understand that for the Christian, there are two possible objects of affection. I mean, in this context, the one is the world, the other is God, and they are opposed. Now, we find in verse 4, adulterers and adulteresses. Now, again, we're people in the church. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God, and whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God? Now, to have a warm, familiar attitude with this world is to be on good terms with God's enemy. Now, what does it mean in more practical application to be a friend of the world? It is to adopt the world's set of values and wants to want what the world wants instead of choosing according to divine standards or divine truths. Now, hang on to this thought because it's going to become more important as we go along. Now, in other words, if I can put it any more clearly, that if a person does that, he has actually put himself to be subject to Satan because Satan is the God of this world. Now, that is a choice that we want to avoid very much so the worldly person will almost invariably choose to satisfy himself. He will take action on his desire. He will choose to satisfy himself, and he will eventually produce confusion, division, and war. And it cannot be otherwise, because the spirit of the world is the spirit of Satan. And laws are at work and laws produce what they are designed to produce. Now, there was the problem in the congregation to which James wrote. If another apostle had been writing it, such as the apostle Paul did when he wrote 1 Corinthians 3, he said, you are yet carnal. These were converted people, but they were carnal, and they were showing it by their choices. That's the key. It was not that they did not have the Spirit of God. It was that they were still so weak spiritually, they were choosing to fall back on what they had in the way of character, understanding, knowledge, vision from the world. And they were showing that Satan was still dominating their lives. Now, this is understandable because Satan is a very wily and powerful adversary. But he can be overcome. He can be defeated. Christ did it. We can do it too, because Christ is in us. Now, when I was a boy, the uh, Tarzan movies starring Johnny Weissmiller uh, were very popular. And there were always several sections in, in every movie that had a great deal of suspense, for a small boy, that is. And usually there was at least one or two standard jungle scenes where it was either dark or 
twilight, just about ready to get dark, or maybe, maybe just about ready to be dawn, but it was almost dark. The air, or the screen, I, said, I should say, or the sound that came out uh, was of shrieking birds and monkeys, and there would also be the standard shot of the slithering python going through the tree, one of the great cats like a lion or a tiger or a panther, uh, a leopard would be seen padding silently through the jungle. And there would also be a shot of an American or a European who looked very much out of place where he was and also very frightened and defenseless, out of place, surrounded by a situation with which he felt a great deal of vulnerability. And always it would seem that at the critical time, Tarzan would show up and he would either command the animals to go away or he would fight them in a desperate struggle and and kill them and the person would be rescued. But what stuck in my mind was how vulnerable the person looked out of his element. So weak, so unaware, so ill-equipped to be in that predicament. And I, vicariously sharing that experience with them, was very fearful and clutched the arms of my chair or the seat or something out of fear for them. Now, the Christian's position in relation to Satan and his demons is similar, but in one sense, perhaps even worse, because we're far more vulnerable than the European or American in the African jungle who needs to be protected by Tarzan because we are being stalked by Satan who is described as being a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. We are surrounded by the world that in many ways is similar to the jungle and is even called it's a jungle out there by some people. But worse than the wild animals, it is filled with people unwittingly being used by Satan the devil, and with mankind, it appears at least on the surface that we have been blindfolded, our ears are plugged, our hands are tied behind our back, because Satan is invisible, and he is soundless. But our mind is free to operate, but we can neither see him nor hear him, And he is incredibly more intelligent, clever, and powerful than we are. Now, it's difficult enough to be aware of him, let alone overcome him in combat. It's like David against Goliath. It's like the Israelites against the people of the land. And you remember how fearful they were of the people of the land. How can we ever do it? Will we draw back like the Israelites? How can we ever do it? Now, there is a way. Now, let's go to 1 Peter 5. 1 Peter 5, in verses 8 and 9. Now, listen to this instruction. Remember I said earlier that though Satan is not the major topic in these books, yet he does come into the picture, showing that the apostles were aware that there was someone who was stirring up the pot within the congregation. Now he says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about 
like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Now, I would say that this verse certainly gives indication that there is little room for carelessness. We are being called upon to be thoroughly self-controlled, to be alert. And you can imagine, if you were in a jungle like these American and Europeans in the Tarzan movies, your adrenal glands would be pumping that stuff right out into your bloodstream, and every nerve in your body would be aware of the danger. And you would be, your eyesight, eyesight may become more acute, your hearing, your willingness to run, to fight, to flee, to do whatever is necessary to preserve your life would really be on edge. And so be sober, you know, be alert, be vigilant. Now, why? Well, because Satan is aiming to undermine our confidence, to sow discord, to get us to stop believing and revert to carnality. Now, those are the directions that he is going to try to push us. Now, notice it says, whom he may devour. May indicates permission. You see, it is something that must be given. He has the ability to do it, that is, devour us spiritually, but it doesn't have to happen. So if we could put that advice in verse 8 into more common 20th century uh, language, Instead of saying, be sober, there's nothing wrong with that, we might say, keep cool. Keep your head screwed on right. Don't lose your presence of mind. Try to keep calm about this. Don't be fearful, or don't lose your temper. Now, he also says to be vigilant, and it would mean, in that kind of a jungle situation, to watch That same kind of phraseology is also used in in reference to prayer. It would be part of our responsibility to pray that we not enter into temptation. That's part of being vigilant. Now, all of these things, the roaring lion, the resisting, the afflictions, suffering, persecution, perfection, strength, are all related as a part of operations that fulfill God's purpose. Now, we have to begin by understanding that Satan, despite his incredible intelligence, his cleverness, his power, is still yet an unwitting dupe in God's hand to bring about God's purpose. That God is far more powerful than Satan. I am sure If we wanted to make a ratio, as great as Satan's power is over us, God's is far more greater than over Satan's power over us. And all of these things are playing a part in what is going on in our life. Now let's turn back to James again, to chapter 4. And again, here we are at the end, almost at the end of the book, and Satan comes on the scene in James' letter to these people. Verse 7, therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, 
and he will flee from you. Resist, and he will flee. Resist what? See the context that precedes it. Resist fulfilling an unlawful desire would fit the context. Because Satan always is trying to lead us into self-indulgence. Now let's continue this theme in the book of Ephesians as we explore our responsibilities. Now you'll notice a theme in the last couple of verses spelling out our responsibilities. Be sober, be alert, resist. And here in Ephesians chapter 4, in verses 26 and 27, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. That's far enough for this sermon. Now has Paul not said, don't give him an opportunity for a bridgehead, a toehold, to induce us into sin. Sin brings death, and that is Satan's aim, to bring about death. Now here, in this context, giving him a bridgehead, see, not giving place to the devil, is directly tied to a feeling, anger. Now, anger, often by itself, is not sin. See, be angry and don't sin. There is an anger that is godly. Righteous indignation would be a a godly anger. But nursing an anger for the wrong reason, here comes the fulfillment of a desire, gives Satan the toehold that he needs. And he will very easily turn it into bitterness or into a sinful conduct. So let's understand very plainly and clearly that having a desire is not ungodly. It is not sin. God gave us these feelings, even ones that we might consider to be somewhat negative. But even something like anger is not often by itself sin. But we have to understand that these are areas which Satan, if we are not alert and vigilant and on guard, He can turn something that is a blessing from God. You see the feeling. Life would be terrible without feelings. It would be bland. But he can turn that, if we are not careful, into a toehold or bridgehead to sin. And that's what we've got to be careful of here. Because when the emotions begin to work, even positive ones, they can push us in the wrong direction. Now let's go back to the book of Luke in chapter 4, and the sermon takes a bit of a turn here, now that we've established that this is an area that he can work in, that he can take a blessing from God and turn it into a curse, if we permit, if we give him permission to do it. It is something that God is, is showing us is under our control. Now, Luke 4, and in verse 13. Now, the context here is the temptations of Christ. And we are not going to go into the temptations because I want to just pick up on one thing here because there are some who feel maybe that Christ was only tempted this one time. But that is not true. Now when the devil, verse 13, 
had ended every temptation, test, trial, pressure. He departed from him until an opportune time. Satan must have a massive ego. Anyone who feels that he could defeat God and actually engage in warfare against him must have an awfully arrogant attitude. Now we find here that when God became a man and was encumbered with flesh, that Satan again attacked. But he did not attack one time. He did it over and over and over again. Always looking for a new angle, a new bridgehead, a new toehold. Now I point this out because I want us to understand clearly that his testing, that his temptations, that his attempts to lead us into sin will not end until we are in the kingdom of God. That he will keep trying and keep coming at us at somewhat different angles. Do not expect that he will attack us only in areas of weakness. Christ didn't have any weaknesses. Satan's arrogance is so huge. He attacked God in, if we can put it this way, God's most invulnerable fortress, right at God's own home (laughs) in heaven, which means that he will attack us in our very strengths as well. And so we can be sure that he will come at us from several different directions, and if he fails one time, he will come at us again another time. If his success is only partial, then he will come at us again from a somewhat different angle. Now, in the case of Christ, uh, the attacks on him were very personal ones, and uh, I have no doubt that from time to time, he will attack us very personally as well. Now, here in this episode, Christ was committing himself to the modus operandi that he would be using in the work of God. And that's why the temptations were what they were. Because Christ had spent 40 days mulling this over, meditating on it, trying to get concrete ideas, conceptions of how he would present the truth of God to the world, how he would represent God the Father. Summer quarter, and so he worked it out. Three, God's eternal and so reign. these were the areas As I said, that Satan chose unit, unit to attack three. Christ on. And I will just look at them the briefly. Epistle, One, Christ committed himself that he would not bribe people with the materialism. Lesson explores the in other words, he was not going to concentrate to love. on supplying people's material needs. With that would be a distortion. Because it would get people's eyes focused on the wrong thing and turn Christianity into a prosperity religion. The focus, he says, has to be on the Word of God and on serving God. Number two, he committed himself to not lowering God's standards. You can study these later. Uh, I am sure that Jesus reasoned this way. All right. God is God. He changes not. 
truth is truth. It doesn't change either. The truth of God. Let's move this around. Black is black and white is white. And therefore, he would not get a following at the expense of lowering the standards of God and making it attractive by liberalizing. People had to focus on the truth of God, and we'll see why in just a bit, because it is the crux of defeating Satan. And number three, when Satan told him to cast himself off the, the, the parapet there of the temple, it's indicated that Jesus would not rely upon sensationalism. You know, he only healed the people who came to him. And that was a, a certain, there was a certain amount of advertising in what he did. But there were other things that he could have done that would have been awesome displays of his power and he refused to do them. Again, that would have put people's focus in the wrong direction. And they would have followed him because sensational things happened around him. Now let's begin to focus on what our lines of defense need to be. Now I want you to notice that I said defense. We can't see them. We can't hear them. There's not a great deal that we can do offensively against him. And our best offense in this case is going to be a good defense. Did you notice the instructions from the apostles? Resist, stand, be alert. I don't know that at any time they used any indication of offensive action. Even the sword of God's word, which we may get to if we have time, one that could be used offensively, yet in the context there in Ephesians 6, it's all defense. He says, stand and defend yourself against the fiery darts of Satan. But even in using defensive measures, Satan can be beaten. Now, you can be sure he's going to go on the offensive. And when he goes on the offensive, we can go on the defense and we can still defeat him. Now, let's go back to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John 2. And in verses 13 and 14. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you, little children, because you have known the father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong. The word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. Now, I told you earlier that when we get to the book of John, we're going to find Satan is undergirding much of what John has written. He may not be mentioned directly in terms of being Satan, but the reference is there. He is the wicked one. Now, did you notice that was written in the past tense? You have overcome the wicked one. Now, what we have here is an encouraging mind conditioner intended by God to give us the will to resist. And I will tell you why. I might put it this way. To give us the will to continue steadfast in the faith. Now, Satan's most persistently used weapon is our fear. He takes advantage of our fear of denying ourselves some pleasure. 
something that will satisfy, something that will make us feel good. Now again, let me understand, to satisfy ourselves, to make us feel good, is not evil in itself. But he can take advantage of those things and twist them and manipulate them into something that is evil. But we somehow get the feeling that if we don't satisfy this, we'll be left out of all the fun that we deserve. Now, I want you to think about the episode in the Garden of Eden, because that undergirds the way that Satan is going to be working to manipulate you and me. They got the feeling that they had to have it in order to satisfy the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, or the pride of life. And what Satan subtly did is he removed the fear in their mind of what God had said. He removed the fear of God, which in this case was the fear of death. And he said, you won't die. And you see, that was partly right because they didn't die immediately, but die they did. They brought it upon themselves, and they probably ate, took that bite of the fruit, and ate, and they felt justified in what they did because they didn't die immediately. Therefore, Lucifer, the serpent, must surely have been right. This process is also very clearly shown in the book of Job. Satan cynically responded to God when God says, You see my servant Job? Satan said, Skin for skin, a man will do anything to save his skin. But Job, unlike Adam and Eve, resisted. And he didn't take the bait. Even when Satan put on the most excruciating pressure in taking away his family, taking away his wealth, taking away his health, Job still remained steadfast, even though there was a lot of questioning of what was going on and why it was going on, because Job did not know that both God and Lucifer were involved in this thing. Now we know, because it's written in the book, and we can take advantage of us, and God gave us an insight into the cynicism of Lucifer, Satan, and the way he approaches you and me. He knows human nature, skin for skin, a man will do anything to save his skin. He knows how to manipulate humanity to take advantage of desires. Now, why is this written in the past tense? Because the victory is already won because death has been overcome through Christ's sacrifice. Now, faith in that sacrifice works to free us from our bondage to Satan and death. Now, that doesn't mean that we will be removed from the heat of the battle, or you might say the perils of the battlefield, but it does assure us that if we are faithful, if we are loyal to God, victory is ours. Because our David has already defeated their Goliath. But if you remember that story that even after Goliath was defeated, the Israelite army had to go out and defeat the Philistine army. And they chased them from one end of Philistia to the other. But the battle went on. So the war is won. The major battle is over. But some battles still go on. 
And that includes ours because the creation of God's character in us is still going on. Now in 1 John 3, and in verse 7, Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil. Now he's not talking about somebody who commits, you know, like one sin, Uh, out of weakness, he's talking about somebody who is living it as a way of life. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, connect this to 1 John 2, verses 13 and 14, and to our situation, for this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Okay, now this section here shows the diabolical source of sin, that is from the devil, and God's enmity against Satan is absolute, and that God's enmity lies at the very heart of God's commitment to rescue man from Satan. He is doing it. He will do it. The major battle is already over. Christ defeated Satan, and we are part of the mopping up operations, but the war goes on. So God will destroy. This word destroy does not mean obliterate in the English sense, but it means to break the power of. Because Satan, we know, is immortal. He is not going to be destroyed in the way that an English-speaking person thinks of. But his power over mankind is absolutely broken because of what Christ did. But he's still alive, he is still working, because God's plan is being worked out, and we're a part of it now. And so destroy, as it is used here, does not mean to cancel out, it means to break the power of. Now on the other hand, if we take it from the English meaning of the word destroy, God will destroy what Satan produces. He's going to destroy this world. I mean this system that is against God. And we know that in the lake of fire, God is going to destroy all of mankind that is unrighteous too. Now, if we are faithful, we will be victorious as Christ was. Now, there's something that John establishes very clearly in the whole book. There are so many verses along this line. I won't go into them, but the next time you read 1 John, please take note of it. And that is the test of whether one is of the truth, is always conduct. Now you can look at verse 10. In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest, made clear. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. You see, conduct is always the test. Now sinful conduct is totally incompatible with the life, you see, that comes from God. And so the children of God, then, are those who find salvation. That word salvation means deliverance from sin by being conformed to Christ's nature through the vision that God gives to us and the knowledge of Him as well. Now let's go to 1 John 5 and verse 18. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin. But he who has been born of God keeps himself, 
and the wicked one does not touch him. Now, understanding this verse is important to understanding this whole relationship so that we can be victorious. Remember Job. Now, I'm going to read this verse to you in two other translations of the Bible because there is an alternate way to translate it, and it is my own opinion that the second way, the one I am just going to read you, is the correct one. It is not that this one here is totally wrong, but rather it is secondary. Okay, from the Phillips translation, 1 John 5 and verse 18, we know that the true child of God does not sin. He is in, listen to this, he, the child of God, is in the charge of God's own son, capitalized, meaning Christ, and the evil one must keep his distance. That is so clear. Remember Satan's complaint against God regarding Job? Oh, why shouldn't he serve you? You put a hedge around him. That's exactly what happens because of your faith in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's why that verse in 1 John 2 is written in the past tense. Now let me read it to you from the Revised English Bible. Again, 1 John 5 and verse 18. We know that no child of God commits sin. He is kept safe by the Son of God, and the evil one cannot touch him. You talk about Tarzan. We have somebody far better than Tarzan. Keeping Satan away. Now it becomes very clear when we begin to connect this with other scriptures. I will give you John 17, verses 12 and 15, where Jesus prayed to the Father and he said, Father, keep them from the evil one. Do you think that God is not going to answer the prayer of his own son? Certainly he is. He says, I pray not that you take them out of the world, but that you keep him, them from the evil one. God is responding to that prayer and keeping Satan away. God knows his children's limits. He knows the power of Satan. And in order to protect us, he will allow Satan not to have a free hand like he has with the world. But he very jealously guards us from the worst of Satan's temptations. Do you remember in Luke 22, verses 31 and 32, when Peter overconfidently said to Christ, I am willing to go to the death for you. Jesus said, well, you know, Peter, Satan has desired to sift you, but he said, I've prayed for you that when that occurs, that your faith not fail. Do you think God was not going to respond to that? Certainly he did. So Jesus said, when you're converted, <laughs> you know, when you come to yourself after this occurs, because he knew what was going to happen to Peter, that all of them, their faith was going to fail, and they weren't going to be loyal to him. And they all ran, and God responded to that prayer. That word fail, incidentally, means not give out wholly or completely. 
And Peter's faith did not give out completely, even though he failed to remain loyal to Christ. And so he rebounded because God was there with him. Now, we are counseled by Jesus Christ, admonished in the Lord's Prayer, to pray for deliverance from the evil one. Now, God will hear that, and he will respond, because our relationship with God is absolutely essential to victory over Satan. And so, to add to the other point, that we will be tempted, the battle goes on, we must be confident God is watching over us and is with us, and he is keeping Satan at bay. Now, in 2 Corinthians 10, we will pick up on another principle here. 2 Corinthians 10, in verses 3 through 5. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God, for pulling down strongholds. Casting down arguments, now notice this, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Now, though we are physical and sin is still with us, we do not have to be at the mercy of corrupt human nature. We don't have to allow Satan an opportunity, and it is right here that our resistance must begin. Okay, we have the knowledge, the assurance from God that he is with us, that he's put a hedge around us, and so we should be able to then go confidently forward through this jungle, through the world, knowing that God is not going to allow us to be tempted or pressured above what we are able Now, our warfare is spiritual. So our weapons must also be those that are bestowed by God's Holy Spirit. Now, carnal weapons such as cleverness or ingenuity or organizing ability, reliance on charm, psychological manipulation, forcefulness of personality, they don't mean a thing to Satan. He can blow them aside. doesn't impress him at all. Now, these things may give superficial victories, but they don't drive evil out. That's the problem. And if we are trying to use things like that, we will always be fighting a losing battle. We are trying to fight spiritual evil with human strength, carnal strength. We are overpowered, outmatched, outgunned. You remember Zechariah 4, 6? Not by power, not by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. The warfare is against invisible and intangible spiritual forces that invade our mind. See this? Verse 5, casting down imaginations, those things take place in the mind. Arguments, those things take place in the mind. And these are spiritual forces that invade our mind and insinuate devilish thoughts. Now, how do these thoughts appear in our mind? See, the verse tells us they are thoughts that exalt themselves against the knowledge of the truth of God. 
Okay, let's think about Adam and Eve. Where did they make their mistake? They allowed what Satan said against God's truth to insinuate itself on their mind, and they began to think about it. So, hey, that sounds logical, reasonable. And once they did that, they were hooked. And so what we have here are things that we might call opinions, deductions, reasonings, arguments, guesses, assumptions, convictions. But in this context here, they all have one dominant theme to them, and that is they exalt themselves against the enmity, against the knowledge of God. Now let's reflect on something. Do you remember the time that Jesus was telling the disciples, this is in Matthew 16, he was telling the disciples what was going to happen to him. And Peter said, out of a good heart, I am sure, when we understand it, there were good intentions in what he said. Not so, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus shot right back, get you behind me, Satan. Because what Peter said, even though Peter did not understand it, it was a thought that exalted itself against what God's scripture said in the Old Testament about what the Messiah was going to go through. And so Jesus immediately nailed Satan to the wall because he recognized where that thought, even though it was well-intentioned by Peter, it was against the truth, against the knowledge of, of God And therefore, that couldn't have come from God's Holy Spirit. It came from Satan. Now, there we have a beautiful, clear, biblical illustration of what Paul is talking about here. When Adam and Eve sinned, they sinned because they permitted a thought that was against the knowledge of God, against the truth of God, to lodge in their mind until it seemed to them to be reasonable and they acted on it. So thoughts here, or arguments, mean ideas that germinate in the mind and give rise to desire and then to action. Wrong ideas of God, man, or even life itself are the roots of sin. Now, are you beginning to see what is our main weapon in defeating Satan? It's truth. Faith in truth. That's what Adam and Eve did not have. They didn't believe what God said. And they sinned. In John 8 and in verse 44. John 8 and in verse 44. You are of your father the devil. And the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And when he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources or he does what is natural to him for he is a liar and the father of it. What God says is the truth. What Satan says is the lie. 
Satan lies as naturally and spontaneously as God speaks the truth. They are opposite of one another, opposed to one another, enemies of one another. But the one speaks truth and the other speaks lies. The only way that we or the world is ever going to change is when we believe God and act on it. It doesn't have to be stated in a complicated way. That's what God is giving us the opportunity of doing, to act on his truth, free from being encumbered by Satan the liar. Did not Jesus say, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free? It is lies that puts us into bondage. We could follow this right through the Bible. There are so many references to it. Look at Romans 1 and verses 24 and 25. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. You know, there is a lie that is above all other lies. It is the belief that something or someone is to be venerated and therefore obeyed in the place of the person and truth of God. That is the essence of idolatry. And most of the time, the one that we do that to and for is ourself. In 1 Thessalonians 2, in verses 10 and 11, Paul writes about those who are going to be destroyed, if I can put it that way, are those who refuse to receive the love of the truth. Definite article. And so when we understand these things, we find then that the children of God are characterized by their love of truth and the children of Satan by their refusal to recognize and accept truth. It becomes very clear. Let's go to one more place here. I think that we can conclude this. In Matthew 4 and verse 4, and we have the, the boss himself and his experience. Now when the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word, the truth that proceeds from the mouth of God. Even when Satan says truth, even when he quotes scripture, he puts a perverse twist to it. Now, how did the boss fight Satan? With truth. There it is. That's how you defeat Satan. Being confident that the victory has already been won, being confident that God has put a hedge on us so that we will not get into a situation confronting Satan that is beyond us, and being absolutely reliant upon the truth of God. Even though we may not be able to see how it is going to be worked out, even though we may feel 
that following the truth of God is going to require a considerable sacrifice on our, on our, ourself here. Yet we have the example of Jesus himself showing us that he fought Satan by relying upon the truth of God. He trusted what God said. You might wonder why Satan used if. He did not use if to get Jesus to, de- to doubt his sonship. Jesus knew he was, but rather he was trying to get him to reflect on if's meaning. Surely, if you're the son of God, you have the right to expect to satisfy what you feel your needs are at the moment. Jesus didn't fall for it. As hungry as he was, he knew that was a trap because he knew that he didn't have to be concerned about supplying his material needs, that God would do it for him. Didn't he later say, if God so feed the birds of the field? That's what he meant. And so what this was, was a temptation for Christ to use his, his sonship in a way other than God-ordained, the God-ordained purpose for it. Now, what is the God-ordained purpose of our calling? To seek you first, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto us. That's the truth of God. God will supply it. And so Jesus' answer was, thank you, but I'll just wait for God to supply my need. Now let's reflect finally on these three things. Number one, we can be confident because the victory has already been won. The warfare continues, but the major major battle is over. And Satan is defeated, and it is God's intent to destroy the works of the devil. Number two, we can be confident that God has put a hedge around us, even as he did Job, and that because we are in the charge of his son, Satan has to keep his distance. And number three, that we are to resist Satan through the recognition of the truth of God and the resistance of Satan's desire to lead us into sin. And he will do that through thoughts that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. And so we will close this series of sermons with that. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.